0: This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time, on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. Our guest today, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Chris Hedges, spent the past year interviewing over 50 veterans about the patterns of the American occupation in Iraq. The result is the book co-authored with journalist Leila Al-Arian, Collateral Damage, America's War Against Iraqi Civilians. Hedges currently is a senior fellow at the Nation Institute, spent nearly two decades as a foreign correspondent correspondent. In Central America, the Middle East, Africa, and the Balkans. He's also the author of the best-selling War is a Force That Gives Us Meeting. Chris Hedges, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thank you. How are you today? Good. Where, where are we picking you up from? Are you in New Jersey right now?
1: Princeton, New Jersey.
0: Excellent. Do you live there? Yes. All right. Is, is that a good commute for you, or are you uh, traveling around most of your time?
1: Well, my commute is from my from upstairs to my downstairs office. <laughs> I teach at the university off and on, too. All
0: right. Well, perfect. Now, how did this book come about? What, what was the starting point of collateral damage?
1: Well, um, as you mentioned in the introduction, uh, you know, I've, I've covered many conflicts, uh, and which has resulted in the book Wars of Force That Gives Us Meaning, and I'm uh, very cognizant of the fact that you can't understand a war or a conflict unless you see it through the eyes of the civilians uh you know 98 plus percent of people in a war zone don't carry a weapon uh and uh, there's that gigantic gulf between the all powerful and the powerless uh and that kind of reporting has just become impossible in Iraq because of the security conditions uh even for journalists that want to go out and do it and so using winter soldier the documentary that was filmed in 1971, where Vietnam veterans came back, met in Detroit, and talked about the atrocities that they had either witnessed or, in many cases, uh, uh, taken part in uh, against civilians in Vietnam. We set out uh, through the Nation Institute and the Nation magazine to find 50 combat veterans from this war who would speak on the record uh, about uh, what life was like for civilians in occupied Iraq. It's a story, that, um, a narrative that I think most Americans have yet to face.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, how did they go about choosing the, the, the 50 uh, veterans? Was there a criteria that had to be met, or did they just randomly go about it?
1: Well, we, we, we chose. We found them. Okay. Uh, w- the criteria was that they had to have spent extensive time in combat zones, uh, and not you know in the green zone working at a radio or something. Uh, so we uh, worked through several veterans groups, including Iraqi Veterans Against the War. Now it was you know it was difficult. It was seven, it was a seven month process. Um, even those veterans who agreed to speak, it was very painful. I would say in ninety plus percent of the cases, at certain points in the interviews, the veterans broke down. It, it's when we turn the tape recorder off and waited until they uh, regained their composure. That's not what the story was about. Um, and usually what would happen is we would finish an interview, and then we would get a referral. They would you know, call someone they knew, a friend or someone in their unit, and convince them to talk to us, uh, because the kinds of things that they were speaking about uh, were not only emotionally difficult to convey, uh, but in many cases would be considered war crimes.
0: Now, was there a common thread that was expressed by by all of these soldiers, or was, was every story pretty much different?
1: Well, they were different, but there was a common thread, and and that's why we worked to get fifty. We wanted to get a critical mass. We wanted to say, all right, you know, these are not isolated incidents, but here are the patterns of the war. And we organized the book around uh, the most volatile flashpoints of contact between uh... american troops and iraqi civilians so these would be like checkpoints or convoys or raids um, detentions and uh... the common thread was that uh... there is indiscriminate violence unleashed by uh... american forces against iraqi civilians on a daily basis which results in tremendous loss of life uh, an injury to uh, tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of Iraqis, and that this is a narrative that uh, has yet to seep into the consciousness of the American public. Mm-hmm.
2: Th- this brings up something. You've you touched on something that's been my, uh, my perception, my-, my point of view, is that the American public, despite having gone through the Korean War, the Vietnam War, and now two wars in, in the Gulf, uh, continue to cling to this idea that the people being killed in these in these conflicts are the bad people, the 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 soldiers from the other side, which statistically is far from the truth. I, I, what I don't know this exact statistic. one t- time I heard ninety percent of the people killed in combat are now civilian. Is is that something I hadn't
1: read that figure, but that would certainly fit with what we were told. Yeah, um, and it's not surprising. Uh, You know, I've covered different types of conflicts, uh, and they each have their own characteristic. Uh, I covered the civil wars in Central America, El Salvador, Guatemala, Nicaragua. These were Salvadoran versus Salvadoran, Guatemalan versus Guatemalan. I covered the first Gulf War, which was a conventional conflict between large, heavily mechanized units in open desert where very few civilians were uh... many civilians died in the first gulf war through bombing of southern iraq but the actual clashes with iraqi forces did not see heavy loss of civilian life Mm -hmm. and then you have these kinds of conflicts which are where you have foreign forces one thinks of israel and gaza coming in from the outside and and trying to impose their will by force they end up fighting an elusive enemy who of course is not wearing a uniform can easily blend into the populace because they rise up out of the populace Um, Vietnam was a conflict like that, uh, the French occupation of Algeria. And the psychiatrist Robert J. Lifton calls these kinds of conflicts uh, atrocity-producing situations. And by that he means uh, that it becomes a short sort of psychological leap from defining uh, uh, a hostile population or identifying a hostile population with the enemy, that there becomes no difference, and that uh, it becomes legitimate to lash out at unarmed civilians, especially when you're taking casualties. Your unit is suffering losses, and you have no one to strike back against. Um, You know, every time an improvised explosive device or an IED goes off in Iraq, these units lay down withering Uh, what they call suppressing fire on either side of the road in densely populated areas with belt-fed light machine guns, known as saws. These are 7.62 machine guns. Automatic grenade launchers, 50-caliber machine guns, which are very heavy weapons. Uh, And the quote-unquote collateral damage is extreme, according to the veterans we interviewed. They very rarely stopped to investigate. And uh, they told us that when there was a possibility of an investigation, uh, many of the units carried what they call throwaway which were AK-47s that they would throw down among the bodies to claim that the civilians were insurgents. Um, Murder is certainly part of every conflict I've covered, murder being the taking of a life of somebody who does not have the capacity to harm you, as opposed to killing, the taking of a life of somebody who does have the capacity to harm you. Uh, But in this kind of a conflict, uh, it's primarily about murder. Uh, There's very little killing.
2: We're speaking with Chris Hedges. The book's "Collateral Damage: America's War Against Iraqi Civilians." Is um, what is what is the collateral damage that's being done in terms of the um, occupation of Iraq and any form of support for what the U.S. is doing there now? Is there is there any support among the Iraqis uh, for a continuing occupation by the United States?
1: Virtually no. Um, I think the last poll I read said that one percent of Iraqis favored American occupation. Yeah. Um,
2: and I bet that was Kurdish the Kurds, if even well, even the Kurds
1: are fine as long yeah. as I mean, but the Kurds want autonomy in the north. Yeah, um, yeah. they certainly don't want to be occupied by coalition forces in the north. they They don't mind if the coalition forces clamp down on the Shiites and the Sunnis right. well, in the middle and the south of the country. So, um, so, no, I mean, and, and that's not surprising. I mean, these kinds of conflicts are not sustainable. History bears that out. Um, you know, we can go back to Iraq and look at the British attempt to occupy Iraq in 1917, which ended with a British uh, withdrawal. Uh, and, you know, uh, uh, that conflict also escalated into a very bloody mess with British Air Force bombing Iraqi towns and um, villages, uh so, uh, over the long run, you can't—you uh, cannot uh, um, impose your will as an outside force. Um, I mean, you can do it for a while, but you can't do it forever. I mean, you know, I always remember going to Algeria, and when you walk through the airport into the airport in Algiers, it says, "Welcome to Algeria, land of a million martyrs." Um, you know, there there is a, a fierce determination and national identity on the part of Iraqis, uh, and um, in the in the long run, this occupation is completely unsustainable.
2: How, how do you respond when when we're hearing this? And I hate to put it this way, happy talk from uh, the uh, the administration and from the McCain campaign that the surge has has worked and that we're, we've turned the tide, and these a number of other things that we heard a lot of times over and over during the uh, the waning days of the Vietnam War, the same right. rhetoric is being used. And, and what do you say when you hear that, that the surge worked or is working and that we're, we've turned the tide? What do you, what's your response? Well, there's,
1: there is, has been a decline in violence, um, but that's not due much to the surge. The surge deployed roughly 30,000 troops in and around Baghdad. It, it was a localized event. Baghdad has just been... Uh, turned into a labyrinth of a maze-like uh, city of blast walls separating ethnically cleansed neighborhoods. Um, it's not a unified city anymore. Iraq is not a unified country. Uh, people have been ghettoized. Um, but what has really uh, affected the uh, or helped uh, diminish the violence has been the, uh, I think, very short-sighted decision to pay off the Sunni insurgents so that you have uh between 80 and 100,000 Sunni uh militia members receiving salaries from the United States of $300 a month. Now remember these people have a lot of blood on their American blood on their hands. Uh and uh that of, uh, has allowed the Sunnis to sort of rise up out of the shadows. Uh they have been allowed to ethnically cleanse and take control of their own little fiefdoms dotted throughout Iraq, driving out Shiites and Kurds primarily Shiites, um, and and constitute themselves as, as a conventional force. Um, now, this is very dangerous because the Sunnis uh, made up the officer corps, primarily most of the officer corps and under Saddam Hussein's Iraq, all of the intelligence services and all of the elite special forces units. Uh, so they, the capacity and training is there to create a very potent uh, conventional army, uh, which has open hostility to the uh, Shiite-dominated and weak central government of Nuri al-Maliki. They remain uh, deeply hostile to the presence of American forces on Iraqi soil. Um, You know, we we rent these people. Um, We don't own them. We tried the same tactic in Afghanistan, where we uh, bought off tribal groups, and and as soon as they got enough weapons and the money stopped, they went right back into the arms of the taliban which is why you're seeing increased uh... conflict and and uh... uh and uh... And increased fighting in afghanistan itself so uh... it's a short-term deal um... that coupled with the fact that the media no longer covers the war american journalism review did a story a couple weeks ago where they actually measured airtime devoted by the very cable news networks who sold us the war and it's staggering. I think it's 6% or 4% of airtime is now devoted to Iraq and the rest to, you know, celebrity gossip, which now passes for news, Madonna and Arad rad whatever his name is, um, uh, as if that's news. Uh, but, of course, in this degraded culture of commercial media, um, it, it's considered news.
2: Yeah. So, so uh, we're at a point now where this is just – it's become very Orwellian in 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 our perceptions of what's going on there we're now it seems to me we're now uh taking the word of uh of candidates who uh as the best possible solution the people who want to perpetuate this war at least uh as long as they can feasibly can and well Barack
1: uh, Obama is not talking about withdrawal either
2: yeah hmm.
1: he's talking about uh downsizing talking about. Also, Barack Obama said he would leave our mercenary forces there, Blackwater. Um, I, nev- I, mean,
2: I never hear these guys talk about Blackwater. They, When they talk about conventional U.S. forces, that seems to be a, a completely different topic.
1: Barack Obama was asked directly about it by Jeremy Scahill, who okay. wrote the book Blackwater. Right, and right. he said that he would... Um, uh, it was either he or senior aides. I can't remember. Jeremy wrote about it in The Nation. But that he would... Be amenable to leaving Blackwater there, uh, especially, of course, if you're worth trying to withdraw down American forces. They're they're sort of barely hanging on by their fingertips now. Yeah. Um, but the notion that you can reduce the forces and that that will somehow ameliorate the problem, uh, you know, Barack Obama talks about leaving uh, forces to protect our imperial city, the Green Zone, the three large super bases to train Iraqi forces and, in his words, fight terrorism. Um, you know, that isn't going to work. Uh, the, the either you leave forces of, you know, the, uh, roughly the size that, it, that is in there now to try and diminish it only, of course, uh, it makes them more vulnerable and, and jeopardizes their security. Um, what, whatever game you play, um, it isn't going to work. And we are faced with a very stark choice, which is either we begin an orderly and phased and organized withdrawal or we face the collapse of the mission. Um, All you have to do is breach repeatedly the security of the Green Zone, which is where you get command and control for Iraq. All you have to do is see the ceasefire break down with Muqtada al-Sadr in the south, and it become difficult and perhaps at some points even impossible to run supplies up up from Kuwait, that main artery, uh, uh, to the north. I mean, you could have you could potentially see American units cut off in the north. I mean, there are so many ways yeah. that with a flick of this switch, this could go really badly really quickly.
2: I know that the u s forces no longer bring um, a lot of their um, supplies uh, via the land route through Basra because of this concern that they have that the uh, influence of the uh, the Shia in that part of the country would uh, could easily. Uh, make that supply line unpassable.
1: Well, if that cease- ceasefire breaks down, um, yeah. it, it it would become treacherous and probably often un-
2: yeah. you know, unpassable. Well, most of the supplies, as I understand it now, are coming via uh, airplanes and air through the air.
1: Well, they still run a lot of truck routes out. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Uh. I mean, partly because the you know the 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 way that they have to you know it's a kind of web of bases throughout Iraq. And, uh, and these convoys are kind of vital links from base. I mean, they're, they're basically large cities. They're large American cities in many ways that have been built throughout the country, completely heavily fortified, completely surrounded. Mm-hmm. And they, they tend to leap from one sort of Fort Apache to the next.
0: We're speaking with Chris Hedges. The book is Collateral Damage, America's War Against Iraqi Civilians. Is there one story, uh, one incident that you heard about from uh, the veterans that really sticks with you and kind of encapsulates the the horror that is uh, happening over there in Iraq to the civilians?
1: Um, uh, There are a lot. Um, I mean, I think some of the most heartbreaking, of course, are when whole families are killed or children are killed. That often occurred at checkpoints where, you know, Iraqi children would... Watch their, you know, the car. Their car would be opened up upon because they approached too quickly, or for whatever reason, American forces at the checkpoint determined that the car might pose a threat, and you know, it would children have very badly wounded, their parents killed in front of them, um, uh, you know, the kind of racism I think the endemic racism uh, that all of the veterans spoke about, the, the utter contempt that most. American occupation soldiers and marines feel towards Iraqis, and the, uh, the, den the the how that plays out in large and small ways, and in in terms of uh, denigrating Iraqis, stripping them of their dignity, um, you know, over and over incidents where the callousness of the occupation forces ensured the death of Iraqis. Um, it, it, it it it's a very by the time you finish the read it's a very sobering picture of what we're doing and and how utterly depraved and 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 even criminal it has become
0: is is our invasion of iraq perhaps the worst foreign policy decision that this country has ever made
1: i think it's the worst foreign policy decision we've ever made because it, you know unlike vietnam which was pretty disastrous we withdrew there weren't long-term regional consequences. In fact, we trade with Vietnam. You know, people go back and visit, and uh, that's what we've done is, is stir up a hornet's nest in uh, one of the least stable areas of the world. Uh, and the consequences of this war, regionally and globally, uh, are potentially disastrous in ways that uh, was not true for the Vietnam conflict. Yeah, I think it's probably the worst foreign policy. Blunder in American history,
2: and and I want to uh, you you put a face on this collateral damage, the civilian deaths in in Iraq with this book, collateral damage. But I want to talk a little bit about the numbers. As I understand it, we we've heard from Lancet, we've heard from John Hopkins on this. They're talking about since the war started, more than a million Iraqis have died. Not maybe as a direct result of of uh, of the war, but. But they have died that wouldn't have died, and the mortality rate has gone up that much. But you, you quote a number of six hundred thousand. Is that uh, is that a number? That's the Lancet study. That's the Lancet study.
1: The last one two years ago. Yeah, numbers now run as high as one point two million.
2: One point two million, and internally displaced, we have somewhere internal refugees over over two million, and over two million are now external refugees and living in Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, and areas around that 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 country. So we're talking. Four to five million people have been dram- dramatically impacted by this occupation. Is that a fair study? Yeah. Unbelievable. In a country that I think was 16 million when we invaded. Yeah. It, it, it's staggering. It is un- it's an unbelievable—and what really upsets me personally is that we very rarely get uh, a glimpse, a context for this— uh, for this unfolding tragedy within our own uh, information sources here in the United States?
1: No, it was fascinating when the article came out because it was, it's, it was based on this investigative piece, 15,000-word piece that was printed in the nation last year. It was a very similar phenomenon to what happened to Winter Soldier, the documentary filmed in 1971. That documentary played all throughout Europe, huge impact, um, but was virtually not distributed in the United States. Um, when we printed our story, it was, uh, on the front pages throughout Europe of the Guardian newspaper in London, actually reprinted all 15,000 words and led the paper in the Independent, BBC, Irish Times, I mean, on and on and on, and here, nothing. Um, Bob Herbert at the New York Times wrote a column about it. NBC came and interviewed, uh, some of the veterans who we, we had interviewed and myself. It never aired. Uh, because it, it challenges that narrative of our heroes, um, it, it, and, and even people who oppose the war are not quite ready to take that step, to face the, the horror um, that's being carried out in our name, uh, the, the reality of, of what this occupation means for innocent Iraqis. Um, we're just not ready to go there yet as a nation.
2: At some point, we have to be responsible we, you, the American people, need to, to be able to step up and say, we're responsible for this carnage. But, uh, and hopefully for, with books like yourself, like this uh, Collateral Damage, Chris Edges, we can begin to come to grips with what we're doing there. I want to thank you for being here on Weekly Signals.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests,